Hi, my name's Laura. And I'm Adam. You're tuning in to the Oats for Breakfast podcast. Today we'll be interviewing Sam Gindon about the ongoing United Auto Workers strike in the United States. Sam was, for much of his life, the director of research for the Canadian Auto Workers. He wrote a book on the history of the CAW called The Canadian Auto Workers, The Birth and Transformation of a Union. More recently, Sam is the co-author with Leo Panich of The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of American Empire. Welcome to the Oats for Breakfast podcast, Sam. Great to be here. So approximately 49,000 GM employees are on strike in the United States right now, prompted in part by GM plans to close four factories. The strike is now entering its second week, and estimates are that it's costing GM upwards of $50 million per week. The strike has shut down 33 manufacturing plants across nine states, as well as 22 parts distribution warehouses. So Sam, GM filed for bankruptcy in 2007-2008 and received bailouts from the United States and Canadian governments. Uh, in what ways has the legacy of the bailout shaped the current strike? I think you have to understand the strike in the context of when the, when the bailout came and GM was really in trouble, uh, workers made concessions. They made major uh, concessions in terms of wages. They really haven't had a significant wage increase since then. Ended in the last three years. GM's been making, uh, made about $35 million over the last uh, three years. $35 billion over the last three years, excuse me. I have trouble with these big numbers. <laughs> uh, no, so they're, they're sitting there. They, they sacrificed a lot. And the, the assumption always was that the reason for the sacrifice was to get job security, which they didn't get. And that uh, once the crisis was over, they'd be compensated because they helped the corporation. And so that's part of what's going on there. This is the time to strike. This is the time to to get this back. Uh, and GM's offered them some things, but with the frustrations that have grown, it's not enough. But the other dimension of this that's important is, in normal circumstances over the last 20 or 30 years, this would be very controlled by the top leadership. Mm-hmm. And the top leadership would be managing this, talking tough, containing it. Uh, but they've been very discredited by a uh, corruption scandal which reaches right uh, to the very top. And so they lost a lot of their authority. And this means that uh, the strike is actually being led from below. This is very unusual. This mm-hmm. hasn't happened in a, a long time. I don't mean 10 years. I mean a long time. Uh, so, you know, a big question here is the key issue for a lot of workers is getting rid of the two-tier system. They saw that as creating second-class citizens, uh, really countervening basic principles of trade unionism and solidarity. You know, when you're doing this kind of thing, you've got to ask, why would anybody want to join this union in terms of organizing as a problem? But mostly it means that people doing the exact same work, especially young workers you expect to revive the union in the future, uh, aren't aren't uh, getting the same pain. It's a very large difference, and GM's complicated by introducing all kinds of other layers. So that's a major issue for the workers, but for the union itself, in terms of looking at what the union's been focusing on, it hasn't focused much on that. So that's one of the tensions in the strike, and uh, GM is really determined to keep it. Now that they've introduced it, they don't want to lose it. And I think that's kind of the critical issue in why the strike happened. The two-tiered system, that is? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I do want to say, I mean, I think it's, you have to understand this very much as being about frustrations. 
that have just bubbled up, but it's being expressed by people on the picket lines in terms of the two-tier system, a basic union principle. The leadership, on the other hand, is trying to get more money, which workers want, and probably as the strike goes on, some of that will become even more important. Lump sum payments, assigning bonuses, profit sharing, uh, small wage increases, and, and the company before the strike started uh, said that they had plans for two, two of the facilities to get new work. Lordstown to get a battery and uh, Hamtramck to get an electric uh, truck, which they may have had in the works anyways. But that happened before the strike. Mm -hmm. So before the strike happened, there was a lot of, you know, there was some money on the table and some j jobs and the promise of investment on the table. Uh, when you looked at the fine print, it didn't look as good as it sounded. But it seems that the sticking point was the two-tier system. Okay, so aside from the two-tier contract and the growth of the temporary workforce, healthcare benefits are also a major issue in the strike. There have been all these horrific stories in the media, such as a child missing his cancer treatment because GM suspended his striking father's GM-provided healthcare, or a temporary worker who lost his son to illness because he didn't qualify for health benefits as a temporary worker. So Sam, how, how do we understand the role of employer-provided healthcare in the strike? The idea when the auto workers negotiated this back in the 50s, early 50s, was that if they could make a breakthrough and make the companies pay for this, it could eventually be socialized. It would eventually, the companies themselves would have an interest in a, a national plan of some kind, rather than that they just have it themselves. And as long as things are going pretty well in the economy, people would look at the auto workers and try to emulate them, copy them. Uh, once you get the period after uh, the early 80s, when companies and the state really came down on workers, uh, workers were really fragmented. They'd look at auto workers and they'd think, well, you can make concessions, you have all these great things. So that was one problem. Whenever you have something like that, you're always in danger of losing it if other people can't get it. Uh, and that's one problem. The other problem was auto workers got, you know, weren't as mobilized about actually getting national health care because they had it. And uh, it wasn't that the union didn't take a good position on the book and resolutions, but the reality was that auto workers felt pretty comfortable. When I say auto workers, I'm really talking about the GM contracts because there's a lot of variation. So in this case, there's a strike on, and uh, uh, GM cuts people off of the off, off of their benefits. Now, that isn't unusual. There might have been a problem here in transition. Uh, usually, when we have strikes in Canada. We know that this is coming, and we pay the benefits. We just make sure we can continue them. Um, it's a little bit easier because the benefits aren't as expensive in Canada because it's on top of health care. So I, I think the bigger problem here is what happens to people who didn't actually have health care, the temporary, you know, and, and, and that's a criticism of GM because of their demands, but it's also a criticism of the union mm -hmm. that you've got people who were left behind that way. It was pensions, benefits, and wages. So those people... Uh, they're in this position of uh, a lot of other workers in the economy, non-union and some unions. So it's it's very bad, but that's a situation you have when you don't have a national health care plan. So so I, I think it's, uh, you know, the problem is about the internal divisions again, which we talked about. And it's also a problem of historically the auto union becoming isolated from the community and other workers because they were able to do better. Speaking of the internal divisions in the union, you talked earlier about this being largely rank and file led, and there's been a lot of criticism of how secret, not just the strike, but the bargaining has been from the leadership. 
Um, there seems to have been relatively little strike mobilization or public outreach, for example, prior to the pick, uh, them taking to the picket lines. Uh, to what degree is that typical of the UAW? And what explains the union's lack of a strategy, I guess? Well, I, w- I would say that uh, in the U.S., uh, especially over the last while, it's been fairly typical to not really be prepared for a war. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know, I know in Canada, there was a strike at the big three in every set of bargaining from the 30s till 1992, I think. It was just a norm. And so you prepared, and the union was fairly strong centrally, and it could prepare. You know, we would prepare a year in advance, talking to workers, uh, trying to frame what the priorities should be. Um, so some of that would happen. In the UAW, they'd normally have conferences and decide priorities, but it wasn't that impressive even in the best of times. I think in this situation, you know, they haven't had a strike for a long time. And then I think the leadership was distracted by the corruption stuff. Uh, I think that leadership was also worried about uh, mobilizing and raising expectations, that it would actually be hard to satisfy them. So I think the leadership was sitting back and hoped that whatever the company offered, if they upped it a little bit, it might not need a strike. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think this was just a mistake. I think this is the, the union wasn't looking to prepare for a war or to raise expectations, uh, which makes it really difficult. The, the rank and file are striking because they're angry and frustrated. Uh, the difficulty is that you're also fragmented. You're in different communities. And it takes, you know, a lot of resources to coordinate all the plants you were talking about, 33 manufacturing plants, et cetera, mm-hmm. and not only coordinate them, but talk to people about how they feel about the strike going on, what they think we should settle for. So, you know, very little of that uh, is going on. Bargaining is usually, I would say members don't get that much information has actually been common. And again, I, I, I want to stress that in the 50s and 60s, when you were strong and you could say, we're going on strike, and we're really going to damage you. Uh, not being that mobilized, as long as you could get the members out, you'd have an impact, and they could get the members out. Once the climate changes and unions are weakened and there's not a lot of other things going on like anti-Vietnam protests, uh, you know, and people are feeling defeated and demoralized and more passive, uh, if you want to go to war, you have to really mobilize them. And you have to show them that you're mobilizing because the workers are watching. Hey, my union isn't really doing much. And the company is watching. One of the things that worked very much well for us is uh, we decided what we wanted and we started telling, talking to the workers about it. That was a message to the company. Hey, these guys are serious. Um, UAW President Gary Jones, along with a number of other elected officials, uh, are currently facing a federal corruption investigation. And some have described uh, workers as waging a war on two fronts against GM and their own leadership. So what exactly is involved with the corruption investigation? Okay, so basically, there was a new institution established in the union as part of their cooperation with the company to set up basically uh, a training institute. All kinds of people would be hired to work there, and they would train workers in basic skills. Uh, you know, as opposed to the cor- corp- if corporation, if it needs training, that's its responsibility. But they set up this institution. And there was something corrupt about it immediately, because it had to do with thinking of the union just in this cooperative way. You know, if you're in the middle of real fights with the company around second tier or reduced work time, you probably couldn't have had this kind of cooperation. The other thing is for the union, it gave them a chance to hire all kinds of people and appoint them. People weren't elected. 
The union gets to appoint people, which means that people who want to get appointed and get off the line, it's not great work, and get a good salary, are going to be very critical about, uh, careful about being critical. They're also going to show up at meetings to support the administration. So there's a corruption in terms of how the union functions. And then uh, there was uh, the company secretly, you know, this, this just this came out. I don't know how many people, probably were, there were rumors, uh, giving people all kinds of things, giving them $300 pens, which I have trouble understanding. I'd have, I'd have trouble using one if I had one. Gold pens. Uh, Trips with all expenses paid to fancy places and expensive meals and basically giving these guys a chance to live like these, like the other class lives, which, you know, I'm sure they justified it to themselves in terms of it's good enough for the corporations, it's good enough for us, but it's a devastating impact on workers. These are the people that you trust to be representing you and to see that they're no different in principle, in terms of their principles. I mean, what they got. It's horrible, but it doesn't compare to what corporations get in a normalized way. But for workers to see this, it really makes them cynical about the institution. And when they're trying to uh, organize, it comes up. When you have an organizing drive on, management immediately puts out all this news. So people say, oh, yeah, they just want our dues so they can. So, you know, it's a, it's a really damaging thing to the spirit of the union. But I just think we have to also link it to this larger decline in what unions stood for and fought for. That was there before they actually got involved in the corruption. Something I was thinking about with this is how it's being portrayed in the media and how corruption with un- within unions, it, it rubs everyone the wrong way, right? Like it's for people who support unions, it's dispiriting. And for people who are against, who are anti-union, essentially, it's a confirmation of what they already believed was gluttony or inefficiency. So in this case, I've seen a lot of articles discussing how the leaders implicated in the scandal were making low six-figure wages, like one twenty-five thousand a year, and that was presented as sort of a crime in and of itself. What? How? Do, what do you see explaining that? Is it just a general anti-union spirit in the U.S., or is there something more to it? Um, I'm not sure. I read the situation the same way in terms of an anti-union spirit. I, I think there's actually a lot of sympathy. Mm-hmm. For unions right now, because of the incredible inequality, people hear that the president of General Motors makes twenty-two million dollars. So they look at this stuff and say, hmm, "This isn't such a big deal." You could add up all the corruption. Uh, I, I, you know, I just think that part of it is that people are trying to be sympathetic to unions in these times. Mm-hmm. I that, guess I sort of misphrased my question, which is that at least in what I've seen, you see a lot more discussion of the union leaders making the yeah. low six figures than yeah. the executives making yeah. the. Seven figures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's just always been a double standard. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'd go into bargaining and ask for a 3% increase, and the executive would be getting uh, an increase that's bigger than our salary. Mm-hmm. You know, or, or, you know, they get in, you know, in a day, the first day after New Year's, they're making more mo- they make more money that day than a worker working on a, an assembly line gets in a year. And that's just part of what's normalized. That's the, the problem with it. I think that... Um, in thinking about this corruption thing, uh, there's a lot of, in a sense, more important things to raise here. Like, obviously, this has got to do with corruption. It's got to do with a lack of democracy. But what this really started with was the union moving towards the notion that uh, we're on a team with a company, and we've got to find ways to cooperate. 
And the easiest way to cooperate is to talk about training. It's kind of like motherhood. Everybody should get trained. Although you could say, okay, the corporation should just do the training if, if it's just technical training. Um, so coming out of that, they set up these institutions of training, which created a, it, it was a clientelist thing. It allowed the union to have all these appointments to make to strengthen its position and people who could come to meetings which weren't very well attended and actually sway the vote. So it was a way of controlling things, uh, giving jobs, but there was also a lot of money involved. And the companies initiated, couldn't happen without the companies, uh, industrial relations people in the company were very happy to give leaders money. It's a good investment for them. They give it. Uh, the guys get discredited if you're ever caught. Uh, the workers, of course, get angry and become cynical. Uh, and it's kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. You won't be as militant and you'll try to get a, a settlement. So... But it, it's rooted in something that was already happening. Mm-hmm. Instead of seeing the union as an independent vehicle mm-hmm. for fighting the company, once you start going down that road, you end up with a lot of bluster and, you know, just phony rhetoric about militancy and the workers deserve this. And underneath that, there's, what's really corrupt is losing that sense of what the union is. And the other thing I, I guess I would emphasize is the left in particular says, uh, some of the left is happy, as you said. It says, see, we're always talking about the bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. Now we can get rid of them. And that uh, the problem is democracy. And you have to be careful about that. The problem is democracy. But democracy in itself doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good union. Democracy might mean somebody saying, which happens, uh, we want the union leaders to represent us and get us a wage increase. Why are they running around worrying about Venezuela and Palestine? So democracy can be very particularist too. The point is democracy has to be about a class goal of some kind. It has to have some vision and ideology to it. So democracy itself isn't kind of saying, oh, we need more democracy. We have to think about that. Because there's this problem that unions are structured as particular organizations. It's a group of people who happen to be working together, who have different ideas, and you represent them. And democracy says you have to represent them. And it doesn't mean that they're class organizations and making them into class organizations is something that has to happen you have to be conscious of what you're doing you have to be conscious of the links and and you know the point of democracy is you're trying to develop people's capacities so they you have an image of working people as being able to do be more than workers and uh you know the trade union movement lost of a lot of those things but there was always a problem in the union movement it was you know you might have it might have been hidden in good times but this problem of well who you really represent are you fighting for the working class or are you fighting for yourself is a real challenge to unions can i add one thing when you ask the question of health just one other thing i wanted to uh, to bring in so auto workers have you know this great health care plan and then the companies started demanding uh, takeaways in it. And they could say, this is a Cadillac plan. Nobody else has something like this. And the union ended up giving up some of those things. It was part of their concessions. Uh, but there was another way to go. They could have said, we're not giving up anything. The real answer here is uh, a nationalized, a socialized Medicare system. We're going to go on strike. And the strike would have suddenly been, the news would have been, auto workers go on strike for health care. And GM would say, well, you can't do that. That's a political demand. Mm. And it doesn't matter if you can't do that. That would have really resonated. Everybody who's losing health care, everybody who didn't have health care and said, hey, this sounds good, 
it, it could have been a rejuvenation of the union. And instead, the union kind of says, well, you know, ended up, I'm going back a few years, but the union ended up kind of saying, well, we tried, but we couldn't get it. And the point was, you would have had to try differently. You would have had to take this risk of not just seeing it as a bargaining relationship, but that you have to broaden the question. And, you, and that's the only way you can win. These are new times, and unions haven't adjusted. Yeah, and you end up at a point now where they're essentially fighting over whether workers will have to pay a certain percentage into the healthcare plan rather than about the nature of it to begin with. Right, yeah. It used to always be a, you didn't pay for anything or drugs, just pay 35 cents. You know, uh, so so that was common. The other thing that's important about the strike is everyone's kind of watching to see if they can sustain it or what will happen. I think the other thing to think about here is that if uh, th these rank-and-file workers, you know, without leadership from the top, can actually sustain the strike for a while, what will happen is they'll develop all kinds of new leaders. And if you develop new leaders, you know, they'll come out, with, they'll win something. They'll buy them off with something. But if they don't win their main demand, if they win their main demand, it's going to have repercussions all over Canada too. But if even if they don't win, if they've gone through a real battle and they've developed new leadership, this could be a really historic turning point where the new leaders aren't just handpicked by the existing leaders. And then you could start thinking about, are these new leaders going to start talking about a new way of doing things? So as an example, Sean Crawford, uh, who's from Flint, uh, and he's become one of the informal leaders. But if you listen to him talk and be interviewed, he's talking about the environment. He's talking about the Democratic Socialists of America. He's talking about why we have to be part of something bigger, that there's a class. Happens to come from a fourth generation, you know, four generations. His grandmother was, I think, involved in the 37 sit-down strike. So, you know, there's this other dynamic that's going on that, because uh, it isn't always whether you win. And any time you win under capitalism, it's at best a partial victory. So it's really a question of what are the dynamics of the struggle you're going through? I want to talk a little bit about the way that GM's been preparing for the strike, potentially. Um, so the Teamsters have honored the picket lines and refused to cross and move constructed vehicles out, but then have also been contractually compelled to move vehicles that are stored off-site. So it seems, at least, that the company has been involved in some type of strategizing, if not about this specific strike, then about at least circumventing the union in the long run. You know, ultimately, whether the strike gets won or not is if the workers can hold out. GM doesn't have any alternatives. Like, you know, you can uh, you can do these piddly little things around the edge, but if they're not making vehicles, it's not going to happen. But I think what GM is trying to do is they're hoping that it isn't a long strike, so if the strike goes, you know, if people are going to get exhausted in, a, in two weeks, then meanwhile, let's just do these small things because they limit the damage. So they're kind of relevant in a short strike. But uh, if you, you know, right now, GM's got a lot of inventory. It's not that it was planned. They just happen to have a lot of in cars that they haven't sold. So GM can hang tough for a while. Uh, the inventory numbers are a little bit misleading because they're averages and sometimes you can run out of certain models. But, uh, but you know, as this goes on, then GM's the one that becomes more vulnerable. At some point, the workers get it. Hey, wait a second. Now they're the ones who are in trouble. They're no longer sitting around waiting and now we have some power. Uh, but this is going to be very difficult. GM is probably the toughest of the big three in saying that there are certain principles that they're going to establish and not give up in. They'll pay. They'll give people more money. 
uh, and they'll make them feel like even if you stay out long, you're not going to win this. So why don't you just take what we're offering? Uh, I mean, the other question here is what's happening in the rest of the labor movement? And people are watching this. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, strikes uh, amongst teachers. So one of the questions is, is the teacher phenomenon isolated? So when you see something like this happening, it begins to create a mood of, hey, there's something going on out there. It's not just teachers and it's not just retail workers. Uh, now it's in the private sector and, you know, maybe this will stimulate others. So that's always a really important thing. I mean, what happens in a strike is so often about the context around you. You know, people who weren't part of the 60s culturally, but were in the plant, it affected them. They felt like, you know, kind of a youth rebellion. They, they felt rebellious too, even if they don't, didn't identify with uh, with the cause. So the mood out there really matters. And one of the things I think that's positive about this is uh, one of the things that the Democratic Socialists for America have to do is build a working class base. You know, there's a lot of focus on the elections, but the question really is, is are you getting to the working class? And a lot of them have become very active around the teacher strikes, and now they're trying to come down and support the GM workers. And I think that's another kind of a dynamic that starts building connections in the longer term. That's important. So on that note, I saw a Gallup poll recently which showed that public approval for unions has been climbing up in the past few years from about 48% a decade ago to about 64% today, which is a pretty significant jump. Um, so how do you see that as important now that the UAW strike is starting to look like it could be a long strike and going forward, how could increased public support for unions in the U.S. be used to combat growing inequality and ro erosion of workers' rights in general? That's a good question. Um, it, it's hard to interpret those statistics because there's usually two things going on. Uh, one is that if you track the Gallup poll, uh, when the economy is strong, people seem more sympathetic to unions. And when the economy is weak, like around 2007 and 8, it actually was lower. It might be surprising in some ways, but that, so some of this is dependent on the economy. And then I, I think that there is a mood in the States that can be taken to the right with Trump playing on frustrations or the left with Sanders that is affecting the discussion. It's all kinds of discussions that you wouldn't have thought would be happening in the United States today. And it's affecting uh, the public mood generally. And I think that the critical point is if the union was out there just making some kind of demand that was obviously sounded just like self-serving, uh, I don't think they would have that. But if they articulate this so that they're going with that kind of a mood, if they're saying this is about equality, this is about people being treated decently, this is about equality within the workforce, the corporations, and, and, you know, it's about accountability of the corporations, uh, to the whole community, not just us, uh, that gives you a good angle to be fighting on. And it's going to be interesting to see if people have a feeling of, damn, it's good, someone's fighting. I like to see somebody fighting. Uh, or whether they'll be disaffected uh, over time. I, I think this has some staying power. I think people are going to be supportive and, it, you know, in, in that sense of it's time people kind of uh, took this on. And it's a general lesson to the whole labor movement. Like, bargaining is no longer just about we're going to go in there and demand something. You better get the public on your side or you're going to be isolated. It's especially important, obviously, in the public sector. But it's interesting. It's also important in the private sector. And, and it impacts on the workers. If the workers 
go back home and they talk to neighbors and the neighbors are saying, great, you know, what you're doing is great. You're fighting for all of us. It makes them feel better. Mm-hmm. If they're going back and everyone is shitting on them, it's a different mood. So I, I think it's really positive that there seems to be a positive attitude to unions. And if they're smart, they can really build on this. And they have to because the other story is the corruption, which is pretty negative. So it's, it's the, the, the crucial thing here is it's rank-and-file workers leading this. If the leadership from the top was standing out there and talking about equality, we didn't get enough of a, you know, we didn't get much, as much corruption as we should have. This is unfair. You wouldn't be getting very far. Um, in the media, GM continues to talk about various investment plans that it's supposedly tabled during bargaining. For example, an electric truck plant in Detroit and a battery plant in Lordstown. Sam, you've been highly critical in the past of the notion of bargaining over investment. So what's your read on this issue during the strike and how has the leadership handled it? Our critique of this uh, originally was theoretical. You know, we said that uh, they can change their mind anytime. Uh, you have no way of policing this. Uh, they just use it to sell collective agreements. And that's actually what happened. Every round of bargaining since 1978, everyone, you can look at the brochures, most of them actually begin with job security guaranteed. And they would do something like say, uh, for the rest of this collective agreement, there will be no layoffs. So you might end up with two years into the agreement, there's no layoffs. And then when the agreement ends, they close the plants. Then they start the next agreement by saying, well, that's all behind us now. So in the late 70s, GM had about 425,000, maybe even more, uh, UAW members. 49,000 now. 49,000 versus about 425,000. That's all, you know, it's like 85 to 90% gone. And every collective agreement was about this promise. So now it's an empirical point. It's no longer telling people, look, this is my analysis. Uh, and now it's telling them, look at the history. Why would you believe these guys? I'm trying to remember the numbers, but I think that the last round of bargaining, um, they promised something like 3,300 new jobs. And instead, I think the workforce fell by about 10,000. Uh, so this time, they're promising 5,000 jobs. And, you know, the question is, well, why would you believe them? And, and then, and then when you, you know, there's, there's been some stuff that's come out on what this means. And, you know, often what it means is, when they promise you a job and they say up front, oh, we're going to be- invest a billion dollars, it's usually a plan they already had. Mm-hmm. It used to be that corporations would say, these are our plans, and then they'd ask for something. Then they figure out, why are, we off- why are we telling them anything about what we're going to do? We'll tell them that we're not going to do anything unless you make a concession. Then you suddenly pull out of a hat things that you were going to do anyways. So, you know, it's not like you even know whether this is a plus, which is the other question. And then a lot of these jobs, when they look at them, you find out that, hey, these are actually some contracts, subcontracted jobs to some non-union for- firm that they're including, so it's not even what they're promising. So you don't have a policing mechanism. Your collective agreements are only three years. And to try to buy jobs, all that happens is you're t- giving the company a message. Hey, never increase any jobs until you come and you threaten us. And what they learn is, well, this is a much easier game. We just come to the workers. We don't have to go to the bank and ask them to give up something. We'll just go to workers and say, uh, you want a job? You better give up something. It's encouraging it. And that's why it's such a dead-end road. At some point, you have to draw a line and fight back. So it helps put the workers in a defensive position time and time again, I guess. Yeah, and at some point, yeah, you just have to uh, 
take it on. And you're also trying to teach people that, look, if you really want job security, you're going to have to challenge the rights of this, these corporations to do what they want. Like, there's no easy game in town. You know, we used to have an auto pact in Canada, a trade agreement, which basically said that if you want to sell cars and make profits here, you have to make a commitment to workers in the community. And if they didn't do it, there were, you know, tariff penalties. So, you know, it's part of, workers have to struggle, and when you struggle, you can win something. But you're going to come up against limits. And if you don't take on those limits politically, uh, you are going to lose. I, I have an example maybe I should give. I think it's a good one. Mm-hmm. A lot of people right now in the States are lamenting how the lack of militancy. And uh, they th- keep raising the 60s when workers were really militant and they were fighting. But one of the lessons of the 60s was you can be as militant as you want, but if you don't control investment in some way or can limit it, they're going to wait you out. They're going to let unemployment rise, which they did, which really changes power relationships. Uh, they're going to move capital. They're not going to reinvest. And you just stay militant for a decade. And if that's what's going on, you get exhausted. And because you're not changing power. So at some point, we can't just say we want to go back to the 60s when people were militant. We also have to learn a lesson from the 60s. And that was the need to politicize things. And, you know, that's difficult in terms of what Laura was saying about normalizing things. You know, people don't even think of, you mean we can ask for that? We can actually say corporations shouldn't have the right to just leave a community after they've been bailed out and uh, after the work, you know, workers put in their sweat and blood uh, and made concessions. And we have to get over that. We actually have to question whether these kinds of uh, undemocratic powers are legitimate. And we're still a long way from that. Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. We're going to continue chatting with Sam Gindon. The next part of our discussion will be made available to our Patreon supporters within the next week. Remember that you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash oatsforbreakfast and becoming a patron of the podcast. Our patron supporters get access to exclusive content and they help us cover the cost of producing the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Bye.